Matthew chapter 11 today. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 through 6 today. It started off 1 through 19. And then I started writing. I thought maybe that's not a good idea. So a little bit shorter message is better than a lot longer message. In my opinion. Matthew 11, 1 through 6. So I've made no secret of the fact with you that I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. Our unity is in Christ, not in the NFL. Um, And so on game one, when the Mississippi State graduate, Dak Prescott, broke his thumb this year, uh, already not playing too well as a team offensively, we were Cowboys fans, we're all you know, deeply concerned about the future of our, our season uh, because no NFL season really has gone well for any backup quarterback. Um, they're second string for a reason. Um, and, and so let's just be honest. Um, so, uh, but, but Cooper Rush this year surprised all, okay? Now, he had a lot of defensive help. For the Cowboys, but he won, you know, what three or four games in a row for the for the Cowboys, and then last week he threw three interceptions, and they actually lost, right? So he had all of this momentum where it was, you know, is there a quarterback controversy in Dallas now um, because he was doing so well? And then on Sunday night against the Eagles, an interdivision game. He, he threw three interceptions. And then the question was, well, is he actually any good? You know, were we overblowing Cooper Rush's abilities? Because now it seems like he's sunk, he sunk back down to earth, you know. And it was a, it was a good lesson, a, a good visualization for me that um, to, to, garner, to, to, to read the responses to Cooper Rush's experience as a backup because what you had in those four or five games was this. You had some who doubted, like myself, whether or not he was really capable of doing anything. And then you had some who was like, you know, no chance. I, I, I'm, they don't, Cowboys don't really have a choice, but, you know, there's, I, I don't believe that Cooper Rush can, can do it. And then you had some who were like, He's going to be terrible. Uh, they were in flat out. You had some who, were, who doubted but still believed, some who didn't believe, and then you had some who were in opposition to him if you watched ESPN or read ESPN too much. Okay. So that is exactly what we're going to see in the text today. Okay, in the chapters 11, really, and chapter 12, you could, you could read Matthew 11 through 12 through that lens and interpret it, I think, correctly and learn the lessons from the text correctly. Because as Jesus is minister, we've seen Jesus' identity and his purpose be established in Matthew 1 through 4. We've seen his teaching in Matthew 5 through 7. We've seen his ministry in Matthew 8 and 9. And we've seen his mission in Matthew 10, which is to equip other people to do the same ministry that he was, he was doing. And it's there that the, um, that the cracks start to form in terms of people's reaction and response to Jesus. I've, we've hinted at it a couple of times along the way, but here it's actually going to start to have, everybody's going to see it. And you're going to have doubt. You're going to have belief. You're going to have doubt. 
you're going to have unbelief, and you're going to have opposition. Okay? And Jesus is teaching disciples through his life and his actual teaching in this text about how to respond and how to live in light of those four different things. Okay? So, um, we're, we're going to focus on doubt today. Okay? When things don't seem to be going the way that we thought they were going to go, we start to doubt. Okay, Oz Guinness calls this being of two minds. Okay, you know you're not believing like you once did, but you're not unbelieving either. Okay, you're of two minds. So if this is you, if it hasn't been, it will be. If it is right now, sovereign timing. Um, if it has been, you will rejoice in this. Um, you're in great company. Um, because there are lots of biblical characters, including John the Baptist, whom Jesus referred to as, up until that point as the greatest human being who had ever lived. Okay? He doubted. So I've, I've titled the message today, The Truth About Doubt. The, the Truth About Doubt. So I want to share with you um, verses 1 through 3, the reasons for our doubt, and then Jesus' response to our doubt in verses 4 through 6. So read with me. Verses 1 through 3, look at the reasons underneath John the Baptist's doubt. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. So that's after they heard in prison what the Christ was doing. You would underline that phrase, heard in prison what the Christ was doing. He sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? That is not amazing. This is the guy who said, Behold, and pointed at him and said, The Lamb of God, who's going to take away the sin of the world. And we fast forward a little bit into Jesus' ministry, and now John is saying, Are you the one? Who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, why, why is that? Y'all, there are probably so many reasons. I mean, there, we're, we're just going to assume that doubt is more complex than I'm, the way I'm going to present it to you today. But the text does give us two, I think, pretty clear reasons why. If Jesus was who he himself had been proclaiming that he was. Okay? And the first of those is circumstances. John, as you see in the text, was in prison. John heard about what Jesus was doing in prison. John's circumstances had changed significantly, and when our circumstances change, we can, we can doubt. I've never been to a prison for criminal reasons. Okay? I have visited a couple, but not for criminal reasons. I do not have a doctorate in ancient Roman penal systems. Okay? But I'm pretty sure John wasn't loving life, okay? Gruel sandwiches. I'm pretty sure it was rough, okay? And John had lived a very free life. You remember this? Nothing tied John down. Nothing burdened him. He had no home, no belongings, no wife, no children. He was completely given to his ministry, and that ministry literally had him living wild and free in the wilderness, you don't get any more freedom than that, okay? 
and his ministry modeled that reality. John spoke his mind freely. He was bold. He was fearless. He was free in his speech and his actions. He called Pharisees vipers. He was a bold dude, okay? And now he's in prison. So John is completely removed from his freedom, and he's stripped of his boldness. He'd been right in the thick of everything, playing second chair leadership role to Jesus' ministry, and now he is isolated from everything, and there was nothing he could do about it. He was sidelined. In other words, his circumstances had shifted so significantly that all of his confidence and all of his beliefs was shifting as well. So when our circumstances change, our beliefs are challenged and our doubts form. That's how it happens. Okay? So he was sidelined, but he was getting some information, okay, about Jesus and his ministry, and he did not like what he was hearing, okay? In the text, it says, he heard in prison... What the Christ, interesting that Matthew would throw that title in there in this moment, what the Messiah was, was doing, okay? So whatever he was hearing, John's uh, understanding of it was that Jesus wasn't living up to John's expectations, which is another reason why we doubt. When things aren't going great, we can doubt But when our expectations aren't being met, that's when doubt really can settle in as as well. John had said this in Matthew 3.12. He said, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, and he's going to burn the chafe with unquenchable fire. Okay, That's what John's expectation of the Messiah was in part. And Jesus wasn't doing that, was he? No. Jesus was doing good. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit. But where's the judgment, Jesus? Where's the winnowing fork? Which I don't even know that I could draw a winnowing fork, but it does not sound comfortable. It's not a gentle tool, right? Burning chafe. There's fire involved. Where's the judgment, Jesus? So my circumstances have changed, and you're not meeting my expectations otherwise. Are you the one? Are you the one? As far as John could see, the world was as awful as it was before Jesus' ministry began. Can Can you relate to this, right? Have you allowed shifts in your life's momentum or in your circumstances of this world to sow seeds of doubt about the work of God in your life? or in your family, or in your work, or in your country. It's really tempting to believe that Jesus may not be all that he's cracked up to be when all of your life is like the battle of the bulge. Like you think you've made progress, and then all of a sudden maybe you're going to lose. That is a very human way to feel and think, and you do not need to feel shame for it. Jesus absolutely understands doubt, which is why his response to John's doubt in verses 4 through 6 is really just so beautiful. Look at this text. Jesus replied to them, to John's disciples, Go and report to John what you hear and see. 
And in case, guys, you don't know what you're hearing and seeing, let me just tell you what you're hearing and seeing. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. I'm just not catching that. I should, I'd be a better, better preacher if I caught that <laughs> on Wednesday. <laughs> That's amazing that those miracles are equated to the poor hearing the good news. Think about that for a little while. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Okay. I find it interesting that Jesus requires and demands belief in who he is and what he's about to do, but that he doesn't condemn doubt. It's tempting to think that doubt and unbelief are the same thing, but they are not. In fact, there is a sense in which doubt is part of belief. Belief is not the absence of doubt. Doubt is not the lack of belief. I think there's a very real sense in which doubt is part of belief. Here's what I mean, okay? Jesus knows something about us that we also know about us, but that we just don't like to acknowledge it, okay? This, this, it, we all have this skeleton in our closet, okay? Jesus knows that we simply cannot see the big picture. But we love to think that we understand perfectly how everything around us is going on. Okay. Jesus knows that our minds are very limited in their capacity, even though we love to think that there is nothing that we cannot ultimately grasp. It's pride is our conversation in Sunday school this morning, right? So the dirty little secret about being human is that we are human, <laughs> right? And Jesus knows this, even if we don't want to recognize this about ourselves. And part of being human is being finite and not being able to comprehend all the things that God can comprehend. So even as God is talking about God things on earth, God in human form, blow our minds, right? We still think that we can understand all the ways that things are going on, that we should be able to grasp that. But we can't because we're finite, we're human, and we're not God. And so God knows this about us, and so he doesn't condemn doubt. He's, he preaches truth to doubt. Yes. That's what he does. So instead of condemning John for doubt that's rooted in very difficult circumstances and an incomplete set of expectation, Jesus ministers to John with truth so that doubt doesn't fester and become deconstruction. Okay. This is why I say that doubt is part of belief. We should embrace doubt as a normative part of the Christian journey. We are finite beings who can barely play chess. Okay, you got 32 pieces, certain maneuvers, limited amount of space, and you can't see two or three moves ahead. And if you can't, John, don't say it. I know you can see farther, okay? <laughs> but like it gets, what, the computers can see 22, 23, 24 moves ahead. Okay, we can't do that. We, we just can't, much less run the universe, okay? So what we need is infinite sovereign truth to be spoken to us, okay? 
And if we speak that truth to doubt, we get better belief. But if we speak lies, we get deconstruction. Okay? So it's Halloween time, even though it's 80 degrees outside. It's almost Halloween. And there's a classic Halloween film called Gremlins from the 80s that you might need to watch. That's not an endorsement. Okay? But in this movie, a young man, a young adult, is, is gifted the cutest little furry animal you have ever seen. He's absolutely adorable. And it's called, um, y'all remember what it's called? That's his name, yes. And, and his, uh, the Mogwai, yes. Oh, Gen X, I love you so much. He's called a Mogwai. And like all animals, a Mogwai needs certain care. Um, and there are three rules for caring for a Mogwai. Do not shine bright light or sun. It will burn or hurt him or, or even melt him if he's left out in the sun. Okay, That's number one. Number two, don't get it wet. If you get it wet, as it turns out, it begins to multiply. Little fur balls just pop out of them. And next thing you know, you got 20 Mogwai. So they, it's a, a producible, I don't know, whatever that's called, a reproduction, whatever. All right. That's not in the notes. Don't know why I had to go scientific. That's how it works. Okay. Asexual. There we go. And rule number three is don't feed it after midnight because if you do, if it gets food after midnight, it turns, it cocoons and turns into a little monster called a gremlin that then wreaks havoc on everyone else that comes near them. Okay, and then that's what happens is they they multiply through water and then they all eat after midnight. And the next thing you know, you have a really funny horror film. Okay, (laughs) doubt is like a mogwai. Okay, if you feed it with something other than truth, it's going to turn into a gremlin and it's going to wreak havoc on your life and everybody else's around you. Okay, so Jesus doesn't condemn John. He gives him truth from Scripture, okay? Not random truth. He gives him truth from Scripture, not some other truth from Scripture to to distract him from his doubt. Jesus gives John the Baptist truth that spoke directly to his doubt by reminding him of the messianic passages that had been fulfilled. That's what Jesus is quoting here. He's, He's coming out of Isaiah 35. He's coming out of Isaiah 61. The latter part of Isaiah 61 is the one that Jesus was handed the scroll in the synagogue for his first public teaching, unrolled it, and it was Isaiah 61. And he, he read it and he says, it's been fulfilled right here. I'm it. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Okay. So that's what Jesus gives John the Baptist. These are messianic passages. But Jesus does something really interesting in this reply, something that John certainly got. And that those of you that have these passages memorized, you may have noticed, Jesus stopped short of quoting all of the passage that he references. Because if you go to Isaiah 35 and you go to Isaiah 61, those passages that Jesus references go on to speak of the very thing that John the Baptist knows is lacking. And the answer is judgment. Judgment. And the reason that Jesus leaves off the judgment part is because, John, it's not time for that yet. It's time for the deaf to hear. It's time for the blind to see. It's time for the lepers to be cleansed. 
Cleanse. It's time for the poor to hear the good news. Okay. Judgment, John, is not the object of my ministry at this time. For now, I'm bringing the kingdom of realities, kingdom of God realities to bear on this world. The day of, but by, by, by quoting those passages, but leaving off, he's, he's affirming what John intuitively knew and was preaching. What he's saying is, not yet. Already, I'm here, but not yet. Okay. The day of God's judgment is going to come. We can wait for that, and we need to wait for that. But while we wait, we need to get on with the ministry of the gospel to this world. That's the application of what Jesus is saying to us. If you doubt that Jesus and the gospel are true because of the circumstances or expectations that you have about how your country ought to be doing and how your culture ought to be running, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to come back one day, but not yet. And until then, bring the gospel, not the judgment. Bring healing to the blind. Bring healing to the deaf. Bring healing to the leper. Y'all can, can take this metaphor. Bring the truth of the gospel to bear in your lives, in your country. And then when Jesus comes back, he'll take care of that part. And it will be purifying for us. We will not miss out. And it'll be punishment for them unless they believe in Jesus. Which is only going to happen if we tell we live in a day of grace, and we need grace. We need grace to believe in Jesus and to hold on to him despite all the things that are going on. Judgment will come, but in the meantime, we've got to bring the hope. That's what Jesus was doing then, and that's what we are doing now as his disciples. Okay. So what do we, what do, we do? What is our response to truth being spoken to us in our doubt? When his circumstances were sideways and his expectations weren't being met, Jesus encouraged John the Baptist to hold fast to what he knew to be true about God. Okay? Jesus did not condemn his doubt, but he spoke truth to it. Jesus implicitly acknowledges and embraces the fact that you and I are limited and, and, and incapable people with regard to sovereignty and understanding all the things, okay? So he speaks truth to it so we don't drift toward deconstruction. Okay. And if you go in your Bibles and just if you, you know, kind of think through the Old Testament and just think through the characters through this lens of doubt, you will find all kinds of crazy. There's all kinds of, I mean, the Psalms 13, how long, O Lord? Why have you forsaken me? Psalm 23, don't be far from me. Psalm 71, these are... Um, all these are these are prayers wrapped up in doubt, wrapped up in uncertainty, and doubt and uncertainty are part of belief. Okay, and there are instances of people who obey God with all kinds of trepidation, but not hesitation, like Abraham and Isaiah. Right, and Scripture doesn't like. In those particular examples, it doesn't really get into their state of mind, but if you're reading through the story, you can, you can feel and sense it's implied that there's some anxiety about how to... About, there's some doubt about how it's all going to work out, but they, but they do it anyway, right? 
Doubt is a part of belief because it doesn't see the whole picture. It isn't sure of the future. That's doubt. But you step forward anyway. That's faith. Okay? So you get all these examples, and they should encourage us because doubt is common to, doubt is common to the heroes of the faith. Okay? They respond to it with humility, and they turn to God to get answers instead of away from God thinking that there are no answers. John Piper, uh, not John Piper, <sighs> Barnabas Piper, his, one of his sons, wrote a great little book about this called Help My Unbelief. It's a, a marvelous, uh, very thorough exposition of Mark 9, where a different um, story, but related to the same topic. He says this. He calls it a believing doubt. I have translated that phrase to doubt as part of faith. Is my way of thinking about it. Doubt is a part of faith, and faith grows in certainty over time because it gains an understanding about its object. We're still, his point is, we're, we're growing. Our, our understanding of who God is and what he's about is, is not static, it's growing. And so faith is going to have a level of doubt at this point in time in your walk that's different than when you've made progress than at this time, okay? Goodness gracious, house flies. So sometimes believing doubt is a reaching and it's a grasping thing, looking for those truths that we can declare that we believe, but as we grow in it, it becomes more constant and confident in those truths um, and, uh, and we can be more bold and we can say, I believe, and we know that the prayer of help my unbelief is already being answered. So when you're doubting, and it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, okay? When you are doubting, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. You are a human being, and Jesus absolutely understands and expects it. That doubt is a part of faith. But speak truth about God to the doubt. Because and that will nurture your faith. That will affirm your faith. That will grow your faith. If you speak lies, you will deconstruct. Because that's what lies do. They break things. They break relationships. They, they break everything. Okay? So speak truth to your doubt and know that Jesus loves you in your doubt and that's what he's going to do. Okay. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story of John the Baptist. It is remarkable. Like I, I, it is remarkable that someone who was so bold and so confident and, and called to prophetically be John the bulldozer would then find in prison and not seeing all the things that he said would come true, find him going, man, was I even remotely close? Are you the one? Because I told everybody you were the one, and you're not lining up to expectations. My life is hard. If you were coming, it should have been easy. There shouldn't be all this injustice. You should be bringing the winnowing fork. And if it could happen to him, Lord, it's going to happen to us. Even we who are on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension and the promise of your second return, it can ha it's going to happen to us. We are finite, limited people, and so we ask that you would in our make us humble, 
make us not ashamed. Give us, give us the heart of someone who would come to a father to trust him, to tell us what we need to hear in our doubt and affirm and grow our faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.